Okay. All right. So like Matthew said, we uh, have the privilege of also working with the university students across the UAE. And it is really amazing what God is doing on the university campuses here. Many, many students are coming to know the Lord, and they are serving God by reaching other students on their campuses with the gospel. And through that, more people, even people from difficult backgrounds, are coming to know the Lord. Now, let me pray for us just once again and ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. God, we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us in your word, without which we would not be able to know you, we would not be able to know how to worship you. We thank you, Lord, that you have enabled us by your spirit to be able to hear your words by faith and to be able to apply those truths in our lives. So God, we ask, Lord, that even today, as we hear your word being preached, that our hearts won't be cold to it, but that we would respond in faith and repentance. We ask that you be glorified, Lord. We pray all this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let me invite you on an imaginative journey with me. Imagine a hot summer's day in ancient Egypt. Amidst all the beautiful buildings are a sea of Hebrew workers. Old men, young children, pregnant women, all bent over under the weight of bricks and straw and human oppression. You can hear the loud crack of whips and the shouting of rude orders amidst the cries of mercy and screams of pain. Well, friends, this was Israel under Egyptian oppression. They prayed to their God, and God heard their prayers. God, in his mercy, raised up a leader, Moses, and he demonstrated his saving power in the lives of his people, the people of Israel, by rescuing them miraculously from one of the most ruthless, powerful nations of that time. The rescue operation itself was quite unbelievable. Nothing like it has been seen or heard since then. God sent terrible plagues to force the hand of Pharaoh. He parted an entire sea and made the Israelites walk through dry land while he drowned entire Egyptian armies in it. But what's even more amazing was that God promised that he was going to make the people of Israel his own people. He promised them that he was going to dwell in their midst like no other nation at that time could experience. He promised them that he was going to give them a land a land flowing with milk and honey. And he promised them that he was going to take them there himself. How could those Hebrew slaves have known the magnificent rescue plan that God had for them? 
could they have ever imagined that the God of the universe would set his love on such lowly people? God, after he rescued the people of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, took them into the wilderness, and he was preparing them for a new life, a life to be his chosen people. And God wanted them to be distinct, different from any other nation around them. So God gave them his laws. God gave them instructions on how they were to worship him, how they were to live in community with each other. Now, at this point in the story, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel have been saved from Egypt, and they are on their way to the promised land. But they have stopped at Mount Sinai. They have heard the law that God gave them. They have agreed to keep it, and they have made a covenant with God. Moses has been called up to the mountain by God, and God is giving Moses instructions on how his people were to worship him, and God was giving Moses the Ten Commandments written by him on tablets of stone. But Moses has been gone for a long time. Moses has been gone for 40 days. And that is the background to the passage we are just about to read this morning. So if you will, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Let me read for us from Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains 
and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on water, and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas! This people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. What an amazing story. Sad, but amazing. There are three points that we want to see in the passage this morning. So for those of you who are taking notes, these are the three points of the sermon. Firstly, we want to see the condition of man. Secondly, the terrible wrath of God. And finally, 
we want to ask the question, who is sufficient to intercede? The condition of man, the terrible wrath of God, and finally, the question, who is sufficient to intercede? Now, for anyone who has followed the journey of God's people in the book of Exodus, up to this point, and has seen God's tender, compassionate care of his people, this story, the story of the worship of the golden calf, is enough to make you sick to your stomach. It was an outright betrayal of God. What could lead them to do something that was so clearly against God? How could they so quickly turn against God, especially after they have just experienced his salvation in their lives from the hands of the Egyptian pharaoh? If you look at the beginning of this passage, it seems like what has triggered everything is their impatience at Moses' delay in coming down from the mountain. Look at verse 1. This is how it all starts. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they took matters into their own hands, and everything is downhill from that point, literally and metaphorically. You see, Moses was their leader. Moses was the one that God had appointed to lead them out of Egypt and lead them into the promised land. Moses was the only channel of communication that they had with God. But now with Moses gone, what were they to do? You can imagine their frustration. Has Moses left us? Has he just left us here to fend for ourselves? What about the promised land that God promised us? How are we going to get there? It seems like the question that they were wrestling with in their minds and their hearts was, has our God abandoned us? Has our God, after showing so much care and compassion, just left us to our own selves? So, in their impatience, they took matters into their own hands, which, by the way, is never a good idea. And they go to Aaron, and they ask Aaron to make for them a representation of God, since God seems to be absent from their midst. Unfortunately for Aaron, he listened to them. So he took their gold, he fashioned it into a golden calf, and he gave them what they wanted. He gave them a representation of God. Now, it's not clear why it is that they had chosen a golden calf. But we, can know, we know one thing. Since they have never seen God, this is not a true representation of God by any means. Perhaps they were drawing from their experience of the idols that they have seen in Egypt and in Canaan. But anyway, what follows right after this making of the golden calf is a worship ceremony. Notice all the different aspects of this worship ceremony. There is an altar. There are burnt offerings and peace offerings. There is a feast. There's even a priest who is making these offerings in Aaron. These were things that should have been reserved for the worship of the true God of Israel and no one else. Now, what is interesting is that many commentators say this about the story, that these people were really attempting to worship 
the true God of Israel. Notice what they say about the golden calf. They say, once Aaron has made it, this, these are your gods who has brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And what are they asking for? Gods that will go before them into the promised land. That is Yahweh, the God of Israel. But you see, the problem was that as they sought to worship God, they did not take into consideration how God sought to be worshipped. They had made the worship of God all about their desires, their needs, their longings. But they did not take into consideration how God wanted to be glorified. They didn't care about how God wanted to be worshipped. They felt perfectly justified in what they were doing. So, because they were worshipping God in a false way, it amounted to them worshipping a false God altogether. Let's be very clear on this point, my friends. The lesson we learn from this passage is that worshipping the true God in a false way is equal to worshipping a false God altogether. God is very serious about the way he should be worshipped. Unless God reveals to us who he is or how he should be worshipped, we would be hopeless. There is no way we would be able to figure that out by ourselves. So say if God were silent, we would have no hope of knowing him or approaching him. But God is not silent. He has revealed to us himself very clearly. Unfortunately today, many people say and think that the best way to know God is to look within yourselves. Have you heard people say, to know God, to feel God, all you have to do is look inside you and you can find God. Friends, our hearts are wicked. We are sinful people. And any God that we come up with looking inside ourselves is going to look exactly like us. So no wonder you hear people say things like, God is not going to send people to hell. Or God doesn't care about who you fall in love with or who you marry or how you spend your time or what church you should go to, or other things like that. Friends, truly we would be hopeless if God did not clearly reveal all these things to us. But God has not abandoned us. He has given us his word. And in his word, he has spoken to us loud and clear. Any impressions of God that we come up with disregarding his clear revealed word is going to lead to Nothing short of idolatry. Brothers and sisters, we must cherish the word of God because it is the only way we can clearly hear God speak to us today. Let us cling firmly to it, not allow ourselves to be deceived into thinking that we can find God elsewhere. Let us be serious students of his word so that we are not tempted, like the Israelites, to build false gods or to worship him falsely. You know what's really ironic about the story? Is that while these people were worshipping idols at the foot of the mountain, on top of the mountain, God was giving instructions to Moses on how he should be worshipped. 
You see, God was giving instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the way that God was making for him to dwell in the midst of his people, something that no other nation at that time could experience without God completely destroying them. This was God drawing his people closer to himself. This was God making preparations to give himself to his people in a special way. It's kind of like a husband who is making preparations to uh, bring his bride closer to himself in a holy union. That is what God was doing with Moses on top of the mountain. But what were the Israelites doing? They were giving their hearts in worship to idols while God was doing that. One author, Mark Dever, puts it this way about what's happening here. This is like committing adultery on your wedding night. This is betrayal at its worst. It's easy for us to look down on the Israelites, isn't it? But we are all prone to doing the same thing. Turning from God and worshiping idols was a problem back then, and it's still a problem even now. Now, I'm going to assume that most of you here in this room are going to say, we don't worship idols, at least physical idols, the kind of idols that Israel worshipped. Now, even though we may not be worshipping idols like the way Israel did, we can still commit idolatry in our hearts. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about the natural inclination of the heart of man. He says that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. John Calvin says this about our human hearts. He says, our hearts are idol factories. In other words, we are great idol-making machines. We are really good at turning God's gifts into his replacements in our lives. But you know what the problem with our idolatry in our hearts is? It doesn't glisten. The idols we worship doesn't glisten like gold. In other words, it's very hard for us to detect what it is that we worship. What are the idols that we worship in our life? Heart idolatry is very subtle. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it? that we give our soul worship to. Tim Keller, an excellent author, by the way, has written a book on this topic, which I highly recommend. It's called Counterfeit Gods. In his book, he says that a way we can know what it is that we worship in our lives is to simply follow the sacrifices that we make in our lives. So to know what you worship, Follow the sacrifices. Let me ask you this. What is it that you sacrifice your time, your money, and your energy on? What is it that consumes your hearts and your minds during those times when nobody is looking? What is it that you are so afraid of losing right now in your lives that if it were to be taken away, you would see no purpose for going on. 
Oftentimes, these things are not evil in and of themselves. Things like money or career, family, relationships. But if a good thing, even a good thing, if it takes the place of God in our lives, it becomes a very bad thing. I remember some years back when I started dating my beautiful wife, Joanna, I would find that I couldn't stop myself from thinking about her all the time. She started consuming my mind and my heart more than God. And any rejection from her made me feel like my whole world was collapsing. I had put her in the place of God in my life. I had turned her into an idol. Let me ask you, what about you? Is there something or someone in your life that occupies your heart and mind more than God right now? Is there something or someone that you trust more than God in your life? Who or what gives you more security than God in your life? Friends, consider asking these questions to each other. Let us help each other discover what is it that we give our heart worship to. Even as Christians today, our heart inclinations are the same as the Israelites like we see in this passage. Our hearts are corrupt. There is no law that is going to be able to fix it. The Israelites just received the law. They already found new ways of breaking it. They had no problem breaking the second commandment of God, even though they had just received it. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 verse 23, talks about sin as a law as well. He says that even sin is a law in our hearts. And one author, John Owens, explains what Paul means this way. He he says that the law of sin is like the law of gravity. It's a powerful, unyielding force that bends us to its will, making our hearts turn away from God. Friends, we all have the law of sin at work in our lives. And left to our own devices, we will find that we will turn away from God. And any other external law that just tells us to do this or not to to do that is going to be powerless in the face of our heart's rebellion and our heart's sinfulness. Even in the lives of the Israelites, the law alone was unable to curb their evil. One author D.A. Carson says this. He says that nobody in this world drifts to holiness. Nobody in this world drifts to holiness. It shows us what our hearts are like. Haven't we all found this to be true in our lives, in our experience as well? Haven't we found our hearts and our minds just wanting to rebel against God, even though we know how he wants us to live? If we are honest with ourselves, we will know that law, God's law alone, is not enough for us. We need a better solution to be able to stand up to the law of sin that is at work in us. But before we talk about the solution, let us talk about what are the consequences of the condition of our hearts. That brings us to our second point, the terrible wrath of God. Now let's see, back in the story, 
how God feels about what these people, what his own people are doing in this passage. Now, a few chapters earlier, we are in Exodus chapter 32 now, but in Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, this is the way that God speaks about his people. Let me read verse 5 onwards. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did you notice the way God speaks about his people? Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now notice the way God's language of his people changes after what they have done in the passage we're looking at this morning. So if you look at verse 7, look at the way that God speaks about his people to Moses. He says, go down for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. You see, these were God's special people. He had made a covenant with them. But now he talks about them like they don't even belong to him. This is God rejecting his people because they have broken his law and broken the covenant that God made with them. Also notice what God wants to do with his people for what they have done. Look at verse 10. This is what God says he wants to do to them. Now leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. God wanted to completely destroy them from the face of the earth. Today, in our too tolerant world, many people reading this will say, God is being too harsh. God is overreacting. Why couldn't God just forgive them and move on? But you see, saying such a thing shows a big misunderstanding on our part of God's character. God is not just being petty or vindictive. God is holy and he is being holy here. God is perfect and he demands perfection from his creation. And he is perfectly just to completely destroy anybody that does not meet his holy, perfect standards. It's also texts like these that lead many people to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and he's vengeful. Not like the God of the New Testament who is gentle and compassionate. But friends, if we spend time studying our Bible, we will know that actually most of the teaching on hell comes from the mouth of Jesus. But then again, I think many people might not think of hell as being as bad as plagues or natural disaster which is what like God uses to judge his people here. But actually, hell is far worse. Physical disaster may last for a second, but hell, hell is an eternity of being under the judgment of a holy God. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same just, holy God and he continues to be the same even today. He has never changed in his view of sin, in his hatred of sin. So, we should know it is a very serious thing for sinners to be found in the hands 
of a holy God. Even though in this passage God relented of bringing utter destruction on his people, they did get a taste of what his judgment is like. Notice in verse 28, God uses Moses, who through Levites brought the death of 3,000 of his people. And later on in verse 35, God sends them plagues, which is what he had sent the Egyptians, but now he sends it on his own people. Though these things were terrible, they were nothing compared to what Israel was spared. They deserved something far worse for what they had done. They deserved eternal judgment. If you notice in verse 33, this is what God says to Moses. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot them out from the book. The book, probably referring to the book of life, contains the names of all those who will spend eternity with God. And to be not among one in the book of life is the worst judgment that one can face. Guess what? Paul says in the New Testament that we all deserve the same eternal judgment, the same condemnation. Even though we don't worship golden calves or idols, all of us were by nature children of wrath. We all deserve eternal condemnation for our rebellion against God. But if you are a Christian here today, you should know that you have been spared of God's judgment. You have been shown extravagant mercy and grace by this God. But because God hates sin, we too should hate sin. And we, should, we too should be fighting it. As Christians, we should never take for granted the forgiveness that God has shown us. But we should be people who speak the truth in love to one another and confront sin in each other's lives when we see it. Others should find it easy to come talk to us when they see sin in our lives. When you think about fighting sin, you shouldn't think about your reputation. You shouldn't think about what others will think of you. It is far better to be embarrassed here in this world than to be embarrassed when you stand in front of a holy God on that day. We should be thinking about how much God hates sin and we should hate sin and we should be doing anything to kill it or it will kill us. This is one of the reasons why God has given us his church. We have each other to keep us accountable, to help us in our fight against sin, to help us in our pursuit of holiness in this life. This life. Brothers and sisters, let us not fall asleep in our fight against sin and in our pursuit of holiness. The greatest gift that God has given us to be able to do that is his own spirit who now lives, resides in the lives of everyone who is in Christ. He enables us to stay alert, to stay awake as we wait for our Lord to return. And we know that when he comes back, he is not going to hold back. He will be all-consuming in his judgment against those who are not on his side. And that day will reveal clearly those who are his and those who are not. 
Now, as we consider God's judgment on the unrighteous, it leads us to ask an important question, which is, who is sufficient to intercede for us? Who is sufficient to intercede for us? That brings us to our third point. Now, back to the story. In the midst of all of God's judgment, we also see God's great act of mercy to his people. And we see that in him providing them a mediator in Moses. The amazing thing that happened when Moses mediated is that God relented of bringing disaster on his people, which they rightly deserved. And from this, we see how important the role of a mediator is. Now, there are many things that we can learn from Moses and from his prayers in this passage about what it looks like to be a great intercessor or to be a great mediator. Notice there are two times that Moses prays in this passage. The first time he prays, we see that in verses 11 to 14, he is praying that God would relent from bringing disaster, destruction on his people. Now, notice the grounds on which he's pleading to God. He does not say, God, have mercy on these people because they are not so bad or because they are good or because they deserve God's mercy in their lives. You see, the reason he's asking God to forgive them is because he wants to see God's name be glorified. In fact, he doesn't talk about the people at all. Let's read from verses 11. Look at his plea. But Moses implored the Lord Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses wants God to relent of bringing disaster on his people because he cares deeply about the name of the Lord. He doesn't want the Egyptians to say that God brought them out only to destroy them. He doesn't want the Egyptians to think that this is a God of wrath, but not a God of mercy. Moreover, he cares deeply that God fulfills his promises that he made to his people through Abraham, even though these people have failed. You see, Moses was so God-centered in his thought and in his appeal to God. The second thing we learn from Moses and his prayer is his humility. God tells Moses a very interesting thing in verse 10. He says to Moses to not stand in his way as he's about to show wrath on his people, but also notice he says that he would make Moses into a great nation. God wanted to start over with Moses. All the blessings that was going to go to the people of Israel was going to go to Moses and his descendants. Can you believe what an incredible opportunity this would have been for Moses? But Moses does not even think about it as he pleads with God to relent from his disaster. 
In fact, Moses doesn't even think about what's going to happen to his life as he stands in the way of God showing his wrath to his people. Moses was far more concerned about the glory of God and the name of God than his own name or his own life even. The third thing that we see, we can learn from Moses and his prayer, is that he does not take sin lightly. We see that as he descends from the mountain, as he sees Israel's sin with his own eyes, he's deeply affected by it. He takes the, the stones, the tablets of the Ten Commandments in his hands, and he breaks them, symbolizing what the people of Israel had just done, breaking God's law, breaking God's covenant with them. He also grinds up this idol and makes them consume it. He feels the same way that God feels about Israel's sin. So we learn that a true intercessor always recognizes how serious sin is. Finally, we learn about Moses' compassion in his plea to God. Notice his second prayer in verses 31 and 32. He says, These people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Do you notice what's the difference between this prayer and his first prayer before God? Did you notice that the first time Moses was asking God to just relent of showing disaster, bringing disaster to his people, this time he is asking God to forgive their sin. And we see Moses' compassion in that he was willing to sacrifice his own life, even to have his name removed from the book of life so that they will be saved. Can you believe that? He was so angry with Israel for what they had just done, but he still loved them enough that he was willing to let go even his own eternal life so that they will be forgiven of their sins. You know, we see Paul saying the same thing in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. This is what Paul says about the people of Israel who are lost. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul, too, like Moses was willing to be cut off. He was willing to give up his, even his salvation for the sake of their salvation. What should we learn from Moses and his prayers? One thing is that, just like Moses, we too are called by God to intercede for people who are lost and perishing in this world. We should learn from Moses about how we should pray and how we should feel about God's glory and about people who are lost. Let me ask you this. What do your prayers tell you about yourself? When you pray, are you motivated by God's glory or is it your own glory that you pray for? Is it God's kingdom that you long to see advanced? 
or is it your own kingdom? It is hard for us to pray for God's glory and his kingdom, isn't it? It is even harder to pray for God's glory if it means that there will be a cost to our lives. Let me ask you some questions to know if we are willing to pray like Moses, even if it means that there will be a great cost to our lives. Let me ask you, would you be willing to pray that the gospel would go out in your workplace, even if it meant that you might lose your job? Would you be willing to pray for opportunities to talk to your friends about Christ, even if it meant that they will reject you? Would you be willing to pray for the unreached peoples of the world to be saved, even if it meant that God might call you to leave your comfort and your security and to take the gospel to them? Friends, the way we pray says a lot about what we care for. Let us consider our prayers, brothers and sisters. Let us pray that God would give us the same zeal for his glory like Moses. And let us pray that God would help us care for people who are lost and perishing in this world. Let us ask ourselves this question. Do we feel the same burden that Moses felt for people that are perishing, for people that are going to face God's eternal judgment in their lives? Let us ask ourselves this question. Do our prayers reflect the kind of compassion that Moses had for people that are perishing? <laughs> Friends, unless we have this kind of compassion for the lost, our prayers are going to be filled with indifference to the condition of people. Let's pray that God would give us the same burden that he gave Moses for people in our land. Let's pray that we too would be people that would pray for non-believers so much that we would be willing to give up anything to see them come to know Christ. Friends, what the city of Abu Dhabi needs most are Christian men and women who will intercede before God on its behalf like Moses did. Just like Moses you need to know that this church, you all, are God's grace to this city. God has placed you here to intercede for the lost. As we see Moses interceding before God, we not only learn how to pray, but we also see what it looks like to have a mediator interceding on our behalf. We need a mediator who is going to be acceptable by God, who is going to be able to successfully turn his wrath against us. Did you notice that at the end of this story, even though Moses was willing to give up his own life, even then he was not able to appease God's eternal judgment on his people. We see that in verse 33. Even Moses was not sufficient enough to turn God's wrath, his eternal judgment, his condemnation against his people. 
And that raises a very important question. If even Moses was not sufficient, then who is? Friends, God in his mercy has provided us a better mediator. He is none other than his only son, Jesus Christ. Christ is far more zealous for God's glory than Moses ever was. Far more compassionate for people who are lost. Christ is perfectly righteous. And he always does the Father's will. And even though he was perfectly righteous, he willingly submitted himself to be crucified on the cross. It was the will of God that he should redeem us by Christ becoming our substitute. In his death, he bore the full wrath of God in our place. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, who was the closest to the Father, was forsaken by him for our sake. John says, he is the Lamb of God that has come into this world to take away the sin. But even death had no hold on him. So on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving to the world that his sacrifice was sufficient for God's justice. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our atonement. He relented of his anger for the sins that we have committed. He had won an unimaginable victory. Christ, the Son of God, was the only one that was sufficient to intercede for us. Friends, this is amazing news. God has made a way for us to be no longer his enemies, but to be reconciled with him, to be his friends. Perhaps you are here this morning and you're hearing this for the first time. Or maybe you have heard this many times before but have never truly turned to Christ. The Bible says that if you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ for your forgiveness, you will know forgiveness and eternal life and a right relationship with God. It is because of Christ and Christ alone that any one of us in this room can hope to find our names written in the book of life and hope to spend eternity with God in his love. If you haven't turned to Christ, I plead with you to consider this good news for yourself and to turn to Christ for forgiveness and to experience the joy of eternal life that he promises to give you. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. Now he sits at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews says about Jesus in chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me repeat that again, and this time let it sink in. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, not only has Christ made atonement for us, but as he lives forever, he is continually, day 
after day making intercession for you and for me, pleading with God on our behalf. John calls him our advocate. He pleads with God to forgive us every time we sin. Christian, this should be the greatest comfort in your life right now. Christ did not save you and then leave you to your own devices. Even now, this is amazing actually to think about it. Even now, even at this very second, a tender, loving, compassionate shepherd is asking God to treat sinners like you and me as if we were completely righteous. That is why we too, like Paul, can confidently proclaim there is now no condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, not only has Christ freed you from condemnation, but he has also opened the way for you to enjoy innumerable, incalculable spiritual blessings that come because he mediates for us. So let me tell you, Christian, when you face your sin and you hear Satan call you guilty, remember that you are perfectly righteous because Christ intercedes for you. When you lose everything for the sake of the gospel, you can be sure that you will never lose your place in the book of life because Christ intercedes for you. When you're sick and your body is failing, remember that you will rise to a new life one day because Christ intercedes for you. When you are rejected by your family and friends and you feel all alone, remember God will never reject you because Christ intercedes for you. When you don't feel God's presence in your life or you doubt his love and his goodness to you, remember, no matter what you feel, your relationship with God is secure in Christ because Christ intercedes for you. Friends, Christ intercedes for us. And it is because Christ intercedes for us that we can say confidently, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing Savior we have. Let's pray. God, we are amazed, Lord, that you show us so much love, so much grace, so much mercy, even though we deserve nothing but your condemnation and your eternal judgment for what we have done against you. God, we know, Lord, that looking inside our hearts even now, that our thoughts, our desires, even our, our hearts, we just want to rebel against you. We want to turn away from you. But we thank you, Lord, that at a great cost to yourself, you have made a way for us to be known by you, to be in a relationship with you forever. And God, we thank you that Christ has accomplished everything that is needed for that to happen in our lives and that he has extended that as a free gift to us that we 
can receive not because of anything we have done, but because of everything he has for your glory. God, we pray, Lord, that every day we will remember what Christ has done, and we will remember that he continues to intercede for us, to plead with us every time we fail, every time we fall into sin. And it is only because of, because of Christ interceding for us that we can have hope that you will love us and you will, that we will be found in you on that day when you return. God, help us to remember this and transform our lives, Lord, as we seek to live by this glorious, great news. We ask and pray all this, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.